I'd like to recapitulate for a moment what we have already discussed as a memory bridge to help you remember the things that constitute a spiritual path are essential to the Buddha's teaching and need to be practiced. The first thing that we talked about was right mindfulness. If we don't use it, we can't meditate. It's that simple. We don't have to wonder why we don't meditate properly. Mindfulness has to be established outside of the meditation. One has to know what one is doing. One has to know what one is doing every moment in an intensive meditation course. That's not that difficult. It's a habit which needs to be established. Now we talked about mindfulness of the body. Check to see whether you're really aware of your movements. Do you know when you open a door and when you close it? Do you know when you put on your shoes or take them off? Or is the mind somewhere else? If you want to meditate, and obviously that's what you want, you've got to do that too. You've got to know each step you take. The voluntary and involuntary actions of the body give us an enormous scope for mindfulness. Mindfulness is paying attention, being aware and awake, getting the mind to be alert. Mindfulness is like a traffic signal. Watch out. Be there. Don't dream or sleep. Wow. The eyes are still open. Body as the first instance of mindfulness. Use it. You will find not only that you can meditate, you will find that it brings a great deal of peacefulness to the mind. Most people who don't have mindfulness, and that's practically the whole globe, are trying to get peacefulness by trying to deny what's actually going on, by trying to distract themselves, by either letting the mind go off on tangents, fantasy, daydream, being unaware, or distracting themselves. But we've all tried that. Or haven't we? And it doesn't work. Reality breaks in again and again. 
And then we've got to start all over again, daydreaming, fantasizing, distracting. And then it comes again. Mindfulness of the body, please. I cannot wish anything better for you than using that. The Buddha recommended it over and over again. But you will notice the moment that you are actually using it, there's peace. There are no problems. There's nothing that could disturb you if you're actually aware and awake. The second one of the foundations of mindfulness, which we've talked about, are the contents of our thoughts. Both of these are addressed in our meditation. Body is addressed in the breath and in the walking meditation. Content of thought is addressed when we labor. Content of thought, use it outside of meditation. It will give you excellent insight into the thought process which is constantly happening and you will recognize the fact that that's dukkha. It's not satisfying or fulfilling. You will recognize the fact that it's very often totally unnecessary and that it's just trying to make something happen because the mind is bored or dissatisfied, reluctant, rejecting. So it starts thinking about all sorts of extraneous matter which have nothing to do with the Buddhist teaching nor with meditation. Now, obviously, in daily life, we have to think about things which have nothing to do with the Buddhist teaching, nor with meditation, because one has to make a living. But right now, at this point in time, you don't have to make a living. All you have to do is become more and more acquainted and familiar with a thought and an guideline which the Buddha gave us which leads us out of all dukkha out of all unsatisfactoriness so when you find that outside of the meditation you're thinking about everything else except that recognize it and substitute put something in that you've heard here that has made an impact that you think you can use, something must have remained in the mind. Obviously, one can't remember everything. That's quite impossible. But a few things. Substitution. The way towards purification In the meditation we use it to substitute all distracting thoughts with attention on the breath. 
outside of meditation, we use it to substitute those thoughts that are quite useless with those that will be helpful. If we're thinking about anything that is of a worldly matter at this stage, we can substitute. The same with our emotions. We've talked about emotions and their purification. Again, if they come up outside of the meditation and they are negative, unhappy, destructive, try to substitute. Why suffer from them? Wouldn't it be much better if one had less of the negativities and more of the positive emotions? I'd like to remind you at this moment that when I spoke about impersonal love, the love that has nothing to do with who's there, I suggested that you use this meditation course and the people who are present as your working ground. In Pali, that's Kamatana. Kamatana is usually used as the meditation that we're doing. Well, this is another kind of working ground. Pick out anyone. Take somebody whom you think looks nice and start creating love in your heart for that person. Not wanting anything from that person, just loving. And then, having done it with that person, take the next one. And then maybe take one whom you think is uh, disturbing you. And then love that person. Do something about the teaching of the Buddha. One can't remember it all, just all at once. But the minute one has done it, one will never forget it. It's impossible. What one has done will forever stay in one's heart and mind. So use that. Do it with the people here. You don't have to tell them a thing. You don't have to go near them. Just pick one, and then pick the next one, and work on it. And if it doesn't work for you, start out with a person for whom you have loving feelings, and then transfer those feelings to others, including yourself. The Buddhist teaching is the greatest medicine. It removes all ills. In fact, it can remove all ills permanently. But we've got to swallow it. It's no use admiring it. That's our first step and may bring one nearer to it. But when we don't, if we don't swallow it, 
It's not going to cure us. You know, a course like this is very quickly over. The first day, one sits there, one thinks, I'll never last. My knees are not up to this. Or my mind's not up to this, or whatever. And the second day, the mind says, well, I'm trying. And the third day, one says, well, it's half over, isn't it? And before you turn around, it's completely over. Unless you use the time really well, one has not got the benefit that one could have. Mindfulness outside of the meditation, body and content of thought, emotions and substituting the negative with the positive. Working on establishing love in the heart totally impersonally. No need to even know the person. <coughs> the first is the right mindfulness, the second is the right effort. The two steps on the Noble Eightfold Path which we have so far addressed. Today we have done a contemplation on decay, disease, death, on the impermanent nature of everything that is mine, and on karma. These are the five daily recollections. The karma one is one. It has several sentences, but it's considered to be one. When the Buddha was still Prince Siddhartha Gautama, the story says that he went out of the palace of his father into the town and he met up with what are called the four messengers. The first three messengers were a very old person, could hardly walk, quite frail and decrepit, looking rather unhappy, bent over and leaning on a stick, quite emaciated. The second messenger was a sick person lying on the sidewalk, unable to move, not able to use even, to get drink even water, with the flies all over the face, with open wounds. The third messenger was a dead person being carried to the cremation ground. And the family following the corpse, wailing and lamenting, crying. And the fourth messenger was a monk who walked totally mindfully with a very serene expression on his face. <coughs> <coughs> 
And the Buddha saw the three messengers of Dukkha. I should say the Bodhisattva. He wasn't the Buddha yet. And he thought to himself, this is universal Dukkha. All of us are faced with that. Decay, disease, and death. How can we find a solution for mankind so that we don't have to suffer like that? The word dukkha is Pali, and I'll continue to use it. It means pain, grief, and lamentation, and suffering, tragedy, but it means, basically, unsatisfactoriness, being unfulfilled. And because it has so many meanings and needs so many words to translate it, we'll just use it as Dukkha. It's everything that ails us, everything that we find inside of ourselves that isn't totally at ease and happy. And when he looked at this Dukkha of mankind, realizing, of course, that he was also subject to it himself, he decided he was going to go to the forest and find out whether there is a solution to that. The story says that he first went to two meditation teachers. The story even says that there were more, but most of the stories say two who taught him the meditative absorptions. And when he finished with that, he realized that while he was happy during the meditation, he still hadn't found the answer to his question, his question about decay, disease, and death. And because in order to become a Buddha, you have to find the answers yourself and don't get a teacher he went to what is now Bodhgaya and sat under the famous Bodhi tree and made a resolution that he was going to sit there as long as it took to become enlightened to find the answer even should his flesh rot from the bones slightly longer than 45 minutes one would think (laughs) so he sat and as he sat he practiced the meditative absorptions from 1 to 8 and down from 8 to 1 and I will explain some of that at another time and as he came out of them he had found the answer. And he made a very brief statement, the Four Noble Truths, which includes the Noble Eightfold Path. Now that very brief statement of Noble Truths is the first Noble Truth that existence means Dukkha. And the second Noble Truth was already 
an enormous insight. There's only one cause for dukkha, and that's craving. Now we have those first two. And those two we need to deal with. The third one says there is also an end of dukkha, which is called Nibbana. And then the Noble Eightfold Path, which is the pathway to that end. Now we're dealing with the Noble Eightfold Path and have dealt with two aspects of it so far. Right now, I'd like to address the first two Noble Truths. That existence is dukkha and that there's only one cause, namely craving. It's a very interesting statement. And we can actually recognize and prove the truth of it to ourselves at a moment's notice. If there is anything in our lives at this moment, anything at all, whether it's a cold or a knee pain or a person or a lack of even the mind, whatever it is, anything at all that is creating a sort of disturbance within. Drop the wish that it be otherwise and the disturbance is gone. And I would like to recommend to you to try that. Anything at all that you're not totally at ease with, totally satisfied, like for instance maybe your meditation, drop the wish that it be otherwise and experience the loosening of the burden. It's not the situation that creates all our dukkha. It's the reaction to it. Now, as far as the second noble truth, the noble truth of craving is concerned, and with what I've just said, you can prove it to yourself that that is the cause for it. There are some more profound cravings which create mankind's dukkha. The first of these we are all very familiar with. We know it backward. It's constantly rearing its ugly head. It's a craving for sensual gratification. We don't like discomfort. We want it to be nice. And if it isn't, we try to avoid the situation. Now, in order to actually bring that to a very clear understanding, I'd like to use the example of the sitting posture. If we sit, let's say with crossed legs, and we get a knee pain or a pain in the thigh or wherever it may be, or let's say a knee pain. 
the mind reacts to that by disliking it. We can hardly, if we're not trained, not at all, stop ourselves from disliking it. It's automatic. Obviously, one can train the mind. But that takes time. So what is happening there? It's discomfort and our craving for sensual gratification, for comfort, immediately puts a stop to everything else we're doing, meditating or whatever it may be, and the dislike in the mind makes us move. Almost, one could say, impulsively, certainly instinctively. We do that all the time. That's the way we live. Anything that creates any kind of discomfort, physical, mental or emotional, the mind reacts with dislike. And since we all are prone to have those situations happen to us, a situation of discomfort, we have a lot of dislike in the mind. Hopefully, we have enough good karma so that we have a 50-50 situation of pleasant and unpleasant sense contacts. But may not even be that. We may have 60, 40. Who knows? At least we have 50% dislike in the mind. Dislike is dislike whatever is the object of our dislike. It belongs to the root and aspect of evil, namely hate. The three roots, greed, hate and delusion, well, it belongs to the one of hate. It's very human. There's nothing to be blamed but it's not pleasant. It's not creating happiness, peace, joy. It doesn't create a kind of harmony within us. It just remains on the worldly level where once we have noticed that, that we're doing that, we will know that everybody's doing it. And then we will hopefully no longer wonder why humanity, as it is, behaves as it does. Everybody has at least half the time in their lives rejection, resentment, dislike in their mind. So what can we expect? Obviously, that's going to result in something. And we see the results all around us. In breakup of family, in argumentation, in disputes, in fights, in murder 
and in war, to put it briefly. It starts with a dislike in the mind of physical discomfort. It's that simple. Check it out yourself. Sit. And then, as the unpleasant feeling arises, check what the mind's doing. Do you move? Do you dislike it? What does the mind do? Or does the mind even tell a long story about it? Which it also sometimes does. Like, it's not healthy because it cuts off the blood circulation and one shouldn't sit like that and all the rest of it. Hmm? It's nothing but a reaction. Now there's a remedy. There's a training. And I'll explain that to you. And I'll explain it to you in a way that you can use it. The mind consists of four parts. In the Buddhist teaching we can find a greater detailed division, but four will do for us. At least it's manageable. The first one is sense contact, sense consciousness. Our five senses. Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching and smelling. The second one is feeling, which arises automatically from sense contact. And feeling has three kinds, pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. Most people never notice the neutral, because at least it's not unpleasant. So we sort of um, bypass that completely. Most people only notice the feeling when it's very, very strong very strongly pleasant or very strongly unpleasant. But it's an automatic follow-up from the sense contact that there is feeling. The next thing is the perception. That's the labeling. Whatever language we speak, whatever background we have, that's the label we give. And the fourth one are the mental formations, which is the reaction. So what happens here when we sit? Sense contact is touch. We're touching. Something is touching something. Knee touches mat. Whatever it may be. The feeling which arises is unpleasant. Unpleasant enough to be noticed. The perception which we have is pain. And the reaction which we have is I don't like it. Useless. Maybe I should try something easier, like Tai Chi. <laughs> this kind of progressive happening from the sense contact to the reaction is what we live with from morning to night. Don't believe it, don't disbelieve it. Please check it. When you eat, very easy to check. Check it when you're eating.
especially when it tastes nice. Check it out. Check it at any moment that you wish. That's the way it works. Now, as we get pleasant feelings, like when we're eating, of course, the mind has a different reaction. It says, oh, very nice, have a little more. Or, have a little more, what's the recipe? Want to do that too. Anything like that. Want to have and want to keep. With the unpleasant, want to get rid of. As quickly as possible. This is a pre-programmed human behavior. And unless we eventually learn to break through that program, it's going to be with us, even on our deathbed. And again, next time around. But that shouldn't worry us now. But it will be with us constantly. And what people do over and over again, trying to remove the outer situation which they believe creates the negative reaction in them. And we can remove and remove and remove. There'll always be another one. People remove so many things. Their partners, their jobs, the country they live in, their teachers, their um, things they have learned, get something new. It doesn't work. Of course, we're so busy doing that, getting something else, that we don't even notice that it doesn't work. Because having tried the next lot, the next books, the next teacher, the next partner, the next job, then we have to remove that again and get the next one. And it does keep one very busy. If one takes time out like we're doing here, time out from all those things, one can come to that inner realization that one has tried here, there, and everywhere. And nothing has been totally satisfying. That's Dukkha. With the sitting position, which we're using as our foundation for recognizing how we actually operate, we can change our reaction by doing the following. There comes an unpleasant feeling and the mind automatically says, I don't like that. I've got to move. Or, we're already moving before we know what the mind has said, which is more likely. Go back to the beginning of it. Go back to the feeling that came from the sitting posture. Maybe you have to re renew the sitting posture. Sit again in the old position if you've already moved. Sit again in the old position. Have the same sense contact. Go back to the feeling. Unpleasant. Say that to yourself. Unpleasant. Then, with the perception of pain, you're already opening the way to the negative reaction. 
don't use it. Just look at the unpleasant feeling and say to yourself, this is an unpleasant feeling, but I don't have to react. I can if I want to. I don't have to. As long as I have to, I'm a slave to my unpleasant feelings and will continue to react to them. But if I realize that I don't have to, that it's quite possible to sit there and recognize an unpleasant feeling as nothing else except an unpleasant feeling, then I have broken through that chain for a moment and have found an inkling of liberty, freedom. In the Third Noble Truth, the Buddha promised us total freedom. This is a taste of it. I don't have to react. And you go back to the breath, and then, of course, the unpleasant feeling arises again, and you do it again. Everybody can do that two or three times. And then the mind says, that's all very interesting, but I can't sit that way. Okay, well, move. Move gently, slowly. And admit to yourself that you have again become the slave to your unpleasant feeling. That's perfectly all right. We're doing it all the time. There's no blame attached to that. We're doing it from morning to night, but we're not aware of it. Here we can become aware of it. We are subject to this unpleasant feeling, and when we react, we have actually used it and are no longer free but dependent. But recognizing that makes a lot of difference. It isn't something that is blameworthy. In fact, I'm recommending it to use it so that we can get to know how a human being functions over and over again, constantly. With the unpleasant one to get away from, with the pleasant one, to get, to keep, and to get again. That's our first and foremost craving which we can be aware of because it's with us constantly. And please use it. Use this in the sitting posture so that you actually get to know how you yourself function. And maybe that will be a breakthrough in recognizing that you don't want to continue to function like that. Which doesn't mean that we can accept any kind of physical pain. That's not that at all. I'm just using that as the example because it's so easily available here when we sit in meditation. It just means that we've become aware of our own reactions to discomfort, dislike, whatever happens physically, mentally, or emotionally. Once we train ourselves to recognize that this is just happening, 
and we don't have to respond unless we want to. We have a great measure of freedom. This is the, the first and most easily accessible craving that we have. But there are two more. And they're actually both more or less the same, or two sides of the same coin. One is the craving for existence, and the other side of the coin is the craving for non-existence. The craving for existence shows itself constantly in our makeup and behavior as trying to actually have an image we try to portray an image whichever image we have chosen there are lots of images around and wanting to support that image and to portray it and to make everyone else aware of who we are is the outcome of our craving for existence. We want to be here, but we want to be somebody also. We want to be somebody that has a certain importance. We don't just want to be anybody. And with that, we go to all sorts of trouble trying to support that idea. Sometimes it works. Some people actually do appreciate us and say, oh, you've done that very well, or don't you look nice, or that's very clever. And most people couldn't care less. They are concerned with their own image. Far too busy. and also haven't trained themselves in any sort of uh, compassion with others. So they're waiting for us to acknowledge them. Now this kind of image-making is so prevalent, so totally imbued in the psyche, that most people have no idea they're doing it. But others can feel it, especially meditators. So if meditated long enough, they can feel it. And that tells them not to do it themselves. But that isn't enough. Because not to do a certain thing can only arise out of deep insight. And the craving for existence is so deeply rooted within us that our own death sounds like a myth. And that's why we need to think of it every single day in the five daily recollections. And I'd like to give you another thing to work with. One thing you shouldn't be in this course is bored. Has enough to do.
contemplate your own death. It's not macabre. It's not negative. It's truthful. It's going to happen. Guaranteed. Unfortunately, most people in the world still resent that, that they're dying, or that they're going to die, or that death is now imminent. Another very unfortunate mental formation. Age has nothing to do with death. Death has a lot to do with karmic resultants. But nobody knows how long they're going to live. The only guarantee we can have is that we're going to die. Nobody can have a guarantee when that will happen. So to make oneself familiar with that and eventually lose all rejection of it and all fear of it helps one to lose some of the craving for existence. Not to be supplanted by the craving for non-existence, which is actually the same deluded stance which happens when things go wrong, like one feels suicidal. Everything is wrong. Let them see how they get along without me. And it does not have any uh, connotation of creating a lack of craving for existence. Nothing like it. It's just the, the other side of the same craving. So, but one's own death, which is absolute, unavoidable, absolutely sure, certain. And having come to terms with that means that we realize also what short a time we're here. Realizing that can create urgency to practice. It will at least make it possible to understand what has priority in our lives. What's most important? Our mind or our body? It's a very important question. One should ask oneself that. Dukkha was described by the Buddha in many different ways. One of the ways he described it was that an enlightened person has one arrow which can create dukkha, but an unenlightened person has two which can create dukkha. The enlightened person's arrow which can create dukkha is the body. But the unenlightened person has a two of body and mind. When the body hurts, 
the mind hurts with it. When the body doesn't get what it thinks it, what the mind thinks it should have, the mind resents it. So we need to inquire if we see how short-lived we are. And even if we turn to be 80, that's not very long, is it? Human beings are supposedly have been around already for five million years. So what's 80? Or even 90? But most people don't even want to be 90. It doesn't really have a feeling of um, that it's something wonderful. And most people don't make it that far anyway. If we get to know that we're going to be here only a short while, we can make it much clearer in our minds what's important. What are the most important things to do? And not waste our time. The less we waste our time, the happier we'll be. Recognizing the dukkha which is inherent in existence, namely the decay and the disease and the death, doesn't mean that we need to suffer from that. The recognition and the acceptance of it and the knowing of its universality means that we don't want to change it. And as we don't want to change it, as we don't have any feeling that it needs to be otherwise, there's no suffering. Decay, disease and death just are. We don't have to push or pull or try because we can't change it anyway. And then, recognizing it as a universal law of nature to which we are subject, we don't suffer because of it, but we live with it. And as we live with it, it becomes clearer and clearer what we need to do to transcend that human aspect which is always full of dukkha. We can transcend while still in this body. We need to practice, obviously, but it will become clearer and clearer that that is the real meaning of a human life. Everything else is by the way. Extraneous. But the real meaning of a human life is to transcend. And when we get an inkling and a taste of what it means not to react to unpleasantness and by the same token not to react to pleasantness not to want to keep it and renew it, but just to recognize it. We get a taste of what it means to transcend. As long as we're caught in this pre-programmed behavior, we can't get any taste of anything.
you know what happens when you press a button and the program just runs. What are you going to do with it? It just runs. One just hopes that it runs correctly. That's all. You can't get, can't break through it. But we can. We can break through our pre-programmed behavior. First by recognizing it. So the dukkha, which the Buddha proclaimed, caused by our craving of being here and being somebody and having sensual comfort and gratification has of course a solution and what I've told you is part of the solution we can refer to a statement that we can find in the Bible. Only those who lose their life have eternal life. That doesn't mean dying. It means no longer craving to be accepting one's own death, one's own mortality, and not only accepting it, but making it part of one's own understanding, thought process and feeling. When we know our own mortality, we're not so much inclined to make an image of our, our, about ourselves that we want to then support and have supported. Mortality is, it's real. Image isn't. It comes from imagining. Reality. The Buddha tried to teach us knowledge and vision of things as they really are. It takes time. It takes dedication. It takes commitment. It takes patience and perseverance. Dedication and commitment are usually rare. They arise quite often out of one's own understanding that there's no other way out of Dukkha. If we get that understanding that there's no other way out of Dukkha, if we stop looking for outer triggers and recognize that it's always in us, then dedication and commitment can arise. I'd like to tell you a little Zen story about eating, because that's what you're going to do right now. So it's going to be fresh in your memory. There was a Zen master who lived with some of his students in a community. And after some years, one of the students finally got up enough courage to say to the Zen master, Master, you say you're enlightened, but what makes you different from us? And the Zen master said, When I sleep, I sleep, and when I eat, I eat. 
And the student said, but sir, I do exactly the same. And the Zen master said, when unenlightened people sleep, they dream a thousand dreams. And when unenlightened people eat, they think a thousand thoughts. But when I sleep, I sleep. And when I eat, I eat. So I'd like you to check that out right now at lunchtime, whether he was correct. <laughs> and if you find him to be correct, then you know what it means not to be mindful. I wish you a very nice meal. <laughs>